Hi, dear listener. Sarahamr speaking. Welcome to the Learning Day, a journey to explore how we can integrate learning in our everyday lives. The path to starting this podcast was long. In fact, I found written evidence that the idea already existed in 2015. That's almost five years ago. However, from the moment I decided now it's the time to the actual publishing of episode zero, less than two months passed by. How come? What changed? What triggered me to action? Although I'm sure there were other aspects that contributed to it, I attribute most of the blame to the support networks around me at this point in time. When I say support networks, I mean having family and friends and other professional and personal communities cheering for and providing the right resources to me. All of those have contributed to set me in motion. However, there was a crucial one. Today, I want to explore that specific kind of support network, mentorship. Today's guest is Erica Neve, an incredibly talented human and also my mentor. We talk about why Erica chooses to learn something outside her comfort zone every year, how being mentored by people with different life experiences has shaped the way she does business and the key to having a more exciting life among other things. Hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Erica. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited for this first interview of the Learning Day podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited as well. You're one of the reasons this is happening, so um, I'm very glad that we you are on the on the show. And but we'll get into that um, a little bit later. Right now, I would like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so yes, I'm Erica, as just introduced. Um, I've spent the last twenty years um, in a career where I've designed solutions to help humans be a better version of themselves. Typically, that means some kind of learning solution. So some of my core expertise is in designing how people learn and designing learning content that can be from traditional curriculums that you may see in schools, so schools, colleges and universities, to unconventional curriculums. And these can span across audiences of people who are in prison, um, people who have been excluded from mainstream education to working with large-scale organisations going through huge amount of tr uh, change, so transformation programmes, mm -hmm. um, and tackling some of the big challenges we have um, as the world changes so quickly. So an example I suppose I'd give is in about a year ago, 18 months ago, I designed a transformation programme um, with Facebook all around giving people in Europe the digital skills that they require um, to be meaningfully employed and a part of society. And to do that programme, we needed to look at the skills that were missing um, in the workplace. So we went and spoke to large-scale employers and small-scale employers across Europe, and then the skills that young people were leaving school, college and university with and without, and what was the gap in between them, and then designing something that was engaging and experiential and meaningful that would mean that young people would want to do that in their free time after 
leaving education to gain those skills. Um, so that program was a face-to-face and online program that um, has just coming to an end now, actually. And over 80,000 people in Europe have now done those courses, which is really interesting to see the data which comes out of that. So through that program, also changing what those those courses look like and how they feel and they're all about the future of work skills and digital skills you can't really say digital separate to that and then maybe I don't know another example would be working for a large retail bank going through transformation as the world changes and helping their workforce um, prepare for that change. So you're connecting um, this this eminent change in the world to learning yes and that um that there's a question that came to my mind so in this 20 years what changed what how has the focus of your work in learning changed and adapt um i don't think the focus for me as a learning experience designer has changed so much maybe the process that i apply hasn't changed so much but mm -hmm. the expectations of people paying me to do the work have for me luckily changed because I could always see that there wasn't a human-centric, person-centric approach to designing learning. It was almost something done to people and that really frustrated me because for me the really important aspects of designing something for humans is that you have to think of it in three separate blocks. So you think about the, the mindsets of the people that you're working with and that is the mindset of I would like to do this I believe it's for me. I believe this is relevant for me. This is why I would like to learn this. The kind of so what? And also the motivation and confidence of that group of people. And then once you've figured out how to ignite the mindsets through some kind of learning program, um, you then can start developing the skill sets and the knowledge because then somebody wants to and they believe they can learn those skills and knowledge. And then after that, you see the continuously enacted behaviors of somebody that has the mindsets and the skill sets to do something. And that's where you see the real impact. And what I often found in the past was that learning was driven by one-time assessments, not change over time of someone's behavior. As they became confident, they began to master what they knew and were able to continuously enact those behaviors and see how it was changing them and the world around them. So I'm seeing it moving away from say, traditional exam-based assessments, you've done that, you know that, that's finished, you've got that test, to understanding that actually learning is lifelong and that we will continue to learn and continue to learn more about the subjects that we know about so we will never really achieve mastery throughout our lives and there's no age to stop learning. You can learn at two, you can learn at 80 and it's still really relevant to the work, what you do in the world and how you show up. So I think that's the change moving from assessment-based, exam-based, static curriculums to curriculums that are adaptive and a new type of assessment that is ongoing and very human-centric learning design, which is awesome to begin to see. That's wonderful. That's exactly what I'm trying to explore with this podcast is um, how, how do you have that mindset to not feel like this is a never-ending job in a, in a bad way? Um, what have you seen in your work that helps people... Um, kind of embrace this mindset that learning is never done and be excited about it? 
Yeah, that can be challenging sometimes because it's around um, almost reframing risk for humans. Um, And that sounds really strange, but humans, egos, confidence, sense of place in the world, hierarchy. Um, If you're the boss, if you're a senior person, all of those constructs that we have around us of what it means to be to be good, to be doing well in the world is based on achievements and maybe static achievements. When you've done those achievements, you don't need to do any more. So we're seeing the world changing really quickly now where suddenly you don't know what you don't know anymore. Suddenly you may not have a job anymore or maybe your job has hugely changed. So I'd say the whole mindset piece is really around helping the people and the humans in front of you understand the risk of not continuing to learn and reframing the risk to be something that is positive that will help you remain meaningfully part of society and meaningfully employed and also the mindset around I suppose growth and being excited and being part of the world and being curious because actually the best thing about learning is sparking curiosity in humans Um, And then humans achieving something potentially they didn't believe they could achieve or they didn't believe was relevant to them. So that's really important in the learning design program. And maybe if you take it back to engaging somebody in the first place to even want to learn, I do apply some of the metrics that you essentially apply to, I don't know, marketing or acquiring a user to a new app or product. So some of those things that maybe traditionally thought of as a marketing tool I apply to learning and some of the first things I design into my learning programs is um, what I call a hook which sounds doesn't sound particularly nice (laughs) but the hook is to really just ignite the mindset and interest and curiosity of somebody and once you've done that you can then engage them with the learning and the hook is very much around inspire and engaging somebody to want to do something and understand the relevance to them So when I design learning journeys, I always have a line in the strategy which always says, so what? Because that's often forgotten learning design. Why does the person who's going to do this learning even want to do it in the first place? What's the so what for them? So that's almost going down to personas and thinking about personas, thinking about user journeys, thinking about how somebody begins a learning process with you and the reason for them to doing it, the so what and the relevance to them and their lives. So I do that as well. I make sure I really think about those aspects. And there could be all sorts of reasons. And as long as you're able to understand what those reasons are, you can design an entry point to the learner um, that really helps them go on that journey productively. Yeah, so reframing the risk, maintaining curiosity, and on the side of the designer, the learning designer, or the teacher, or the educator, really thinking about why. Yeah, yeah and engage in any of the aspects of the learning journey or do any of the learning that may be not face-to-face. If you're designing a blended learning journey or an online learning journey, there are many distractions and many things those people could be doing other than doing the learning that you've designed or have been designed with you in a group of people. So understanding how to keep their attention. Yes, almost respecting their Mm. time. Yeah, definitely. Yes, I could go on talking about this for hours, but I actually want to go back. You talked about um, being comfortable with risk. And there is something I know about yourself that you, you do every year to make you uncomfortable. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So every year I choose a letter of the alphabet and not in not in any particular order. So I've gone all over the alphabet so far. Um, and I learn things beginning with that letter. Um, and I try and pick things which are very unknown to me in, in a subject or in an area that I've never done before. Um, and it's very uncomfortable at first, and really scary. But the reason I do it professionally is because often I'm designing for an audience that is a beginner at the subject, topic, industry, whatever it might be. And the people I'm working with to to gather the content are experts. And those experts have forgotten by the very fact that they're experts what it's like to be a beginner. So my job is to understand what it's like to be a beginner to start that journey and also how to distill and uh, distill the information to be the right information for a beginner to start with and then go on that journey. So that's one of the reasons. So I keep remembering what it's like to be a beginner in a variety of subjects and how that feels because learning is about feeling, thinking and doing. So how that feels. And secondly, to, to keep challenging me and the way I design learning. Um, so learning from other, the ways that other people teach, the other, pe other people practice and the things they do and how they do it in different spheres. And then thirdly, because we're now entering a world where actually we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, we're not entering, we already are. The world is changing so rapidly and the things which affect our daily lives are pervasive. The technology that affects how we think, learn, operate, do work is pervasive and exponentially impacting. So actually it's really good practice to keep feeling uncomfortable. I think the third, fourth reason why I do it is ego because you can become... Um, <laughs> You can be, you can become may, maybe driven by your ego and driven by what you think you're good at. So to being taken back to not being good at something and recognizing what other people can teach you. Because I've come across practitioners in the learning field, especially, who don't believe other people can teach them anything more about their practice, and especially other people that haven't learned their practice like they've learned their practice. There's quite a lot of snobbery in the traditional L&D community. And I believe you can learn from everybody and everybody has something to share with you, whoever they are in society. So that's also led me to continue to do that and keep my ego in check. So that's meant that things I've kind of, I've picked to learn in the past have been really broad spectrum from stand-up comedy to learning how to MMA fight, which is also known as cage fighting, <laughs> um, which is incredibly challenging. It's not something I ever thought I would do. And I do it to a point where I achieve something like win a fight, do a stand-up comedy set. And then other things I tackle are things that I feel really uncomfortable with. Maybe that I feel like I lacked that type of education when I was growing up. So philosophy and things like that, where I can feel really undermined and out of place and that I don't have a seat at the table when I go and try and learn something like that. But I have to overcome all those fears and all those barriers that I've got to those subjects, whether it's this is not for me, I don't go and punch people, to that person can't teach me because what they look like, how they sound, to I'm not good enough to be in this room because I didn't learn, I didn't learn things like this at the school I went to. So all those barriers I feel I try and head face on and do. Um, and I've had and I've met some amazing people along the route now and made some amazing friends. So I've got it's the secondary 
sort of element of return from doing that each year as being I've got an awesome group of friends and if ever I have parties I've got a really strange cross-section of people there (laughs) oh that's that's very interesting I hope one day you invite me for one of those parties to see the comedians (laughs) and the cage fighters together um and the philosophers what a what an interesting (laughs) well you can start your next joke with that (laughs) a philosopher a cage (laughs) yes definitely that's good it's gonna be a Christmas joke this year (laughs) Um, yeah, I wanted I wanted you to share that because um, I, I think that's quite inspiring for me, and I hope it will be inspiring for other people. Um, this willingness to feel uncomfortable, this willingness to go outside um, anything that you would normally do um, for the sake of learning, just because mm-hmm. um, we don't need to have this very fixed um, goal in mind, uh, like like skill goal let's call it that uh, which is usually how training um, is um, interpreted Um, and it's it's learning a mindset more than anything more than learning the cage fighting Um, yeah so thank you for sharing that let's start going into the topic of the podcast and talking about mentorship most people, well, no one in this podcast, the listeners know that you are uh, my mentor. And that's why I wanted to have you on this episode. And let's start by talking about what is what is mentorship for you? I know you have the perspective both as a mentor, as a mentee. Um, yes, I think it's it's a way of helping to enable or support somebody else in their individual learning journey or professional journey. So as opposed to designing something for many people or even coaching strategies or any of those kind of things, mentorship is very much about the individual, the individual and their intentions and the way they're showing up and helping them maybe talk through some of their intentions, some of their ambitions, and also being their champion because Quite often, as you get to know a mentor, uh, someone you're mentoring, elements of confidence or elements of self-belief or prioritization of things, because we quite often prioritize, for example, especially if we freelance, paid for work as opposed to the other work we'd really love to do to develop our practice and start doing more of the work that we love. We prioritize the paid work and put everything else on the side. So it's my role as a mentor to help whoever I'm mentoring, to refocus sometimes on the things that are actually really important to them as individuals and out of doing those things that are really important to them as individuals or focusing focusing on something, then um, the rest of their practice, their professional practice, where they want to work next, who they want to become, starts beginning to fall into place a little bit more because they're spending time on themselves and thinking about that and also having potentially another viewpoint from that maybe somebody to challenge some of the things they're thinking and sometimes to push them and nudge them in in a direction to do something they're holding off from doing for whatever reason it might be and of course just I think I said this before being their biggest champion being their ally as part of that process as well yeah I can definitely see that point specifically of like um, refocusing and following whatever project that they may be avoiding for for many different uh, reasons. Um, and I, I've had the chance to share with you, but 
I, I would like to share with everyone else that doing this podcast was something that was in the back of my mind for a really long time and having someone to cheer for me and just saying, no, go back to it. You have something to say. It it helps build up confidence and um, just just not letting your ideas be inside your head. <laughs> and they are they are in the world and someone else knows them and someone else cares about them. Um, and that that helps refocus, as you said. And you, you talked a lot about your role as a as a mentor. Um, how how do you benefit from mentorship? That'd be a good question to ask that to you again in a minute as well. Um, for me, um, it's again it's sense checking. So I've got a couple of mentors. Actually, both of them are men. So um, I would really like to have a female mentor as well. So that will be my next challenge. Um, but actually having a male perspective for me has been really useful because I've realised that I have most certainly put barriers up which are related to my sense of being a woman and my place in the world when I'm pitching for work, when I'm doing work. So what I do with my mentors is check in on things and it was almost unintentional at first like I'd say oh I'm going to do this pitch this is my proposal document what do you think and then I'd have this barrage of you need to say this you need to say that you need to do this which I wouldn't have ordinarily done but what I realized was they were sharing how they would pitch it from their perspective as a man and I suddenly had this kind of crystal clear moment of I need to move a bit closer to that to essentially show my true worth or what I can add to this project um, so that's been really useful with my mentors, having having their experience, both as my mentor, but also in this case as men in the world, um, being able to ask their advice about things. So I tend to think about something I really need advice about that maybe I'm unsure about. Maybe for a recent one was working with a client. Now, I had a client that I felt uncomfortable with, my gut feeling was that they weren't the right client for me. I sense checked with one of my mentors and they essentially said in black and white how they felt that client would act from their experience, but gave me the advice to try it, but think about X, Y, and Z. Um, and actually they were perfectly right. And what I should have done is see my mentor earlier and maybe had a bit more of a framework about whether I decided to work the client or not work with the client. From my professional network my both my mentors have been really good at, at introducing me to other people so I hope that I can do that in the right way for the people that I mentor with because that's been incredibly helpful because they've introduced me to people they know that I should connect with or they've set me up to have a meeting with somebody that may or may not be able to give me business now in the future and that's been really supportive and also boosts your confidence because they obviously value you and what you do. Um, I can see all of that um, on our relationship as well. Um, for me, um, you didn't ask, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, for me, the um, uh, for me, it has a lot um, of value in the sense that uh, having a mentor helps me reflect outside of my head um, and being forced to think uh, through my experiences and try to make sense of them instead of just running and um, you know, just jumping to the next project and not taking the time to see um, what I've learned and what 
what worked well for me. And also uh, accountability, knowing that I have someone that will ask me uh, if I've done the tasks or uh, read the book or the, the blog post or uh, took the next step to create a podcast. That's really, that, that really helps me because I tend to prioritize everything else that's outside me, mainly client work, and deprioritize anything that's related to me or to my individual practice. And so that has been very helpful. And, and for sure, uh, having that perspective, as you said, perspective from someone, in this case, from you that have a lot more experience than I do, gives me confidence when I'm making decisions that if I have your worldview as someone I can, as something I can tap into and yeah, just having someone to come along with you on the journey, um, that, that helps a lot. I think particularly for us that work as as um, freelancers and yeah we spend a lot of time alone. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no formal reviews as much as I hate them. There are no <laughs> can't really hold a yeah. formal review with yourself. <laughs> what do you think about structure in mentoring because I don't have any structure in the mentoring that I have from my mentors. I do try and send them an email beforehand and say these are the three areas that would be great to discuss but quite often they don't have time to read that email um and they're very busy people Mm -hmm. so I'm sometimes wary about putting that pressure but then on the other side of it they have said actually it'd be really good if you do that because then we've got structure to this hour we're spending together so we haven't had a great deal of structure in our sessions Mm. do you think it's worth maybe there's phases that you go through in mentoring is it worth building in structure so there's kind of a set of impacts and outputs and success metrics we can review to say yeah this is working this is really how what's your thoughts yeah I think the there are two things that kind of influence the need for structure for me is the stage as you said so where in your career or personal life you're at Maybe there are moments where you just need someone to talk to. Um, Other moments, you need someone to keep you accountable. And then having the list of topics, the deadlines, all of that is very helpful. But And and the other one is the the individual. So there are some people that work really well with structure. Others need to be left um, free (laughs) uh, to to create. So... um, I think not having a lot of structure in our sessions has been very helpful so far. Maybe we'll, um, as as we go into the next year and uh, we'll start defining our goals, maybe sharing that with each other um, and uh, creating structures that make sense um, for that specifically. Because I know for me this year has been just uh, this one big exploration. <laughs> and so the unstructured um, kind of our sessions has been helpful um, but moving forward I want to be more focused and therefore we might need more structure so yeah back to the stage um, in terms of the individual I have seen at, at the school that I was working at some students needed a lot of structure because they were bad with structure <laughs> and so they needed the the mentor to be to be very uh, okay this is this is what we're going to discuss. This is the uh, how long it's going to take. This is exactly what you need to do for the next session. Other students were so good with structure that the mentor didn't have to do anything. 
they they would come in with an agenda they would know clearly what they needed and so yeah you need to i think yeah adjust have a um, human centered <laughs> mentor mentorship um process as well uh, depending on the yeah. individual yes i agree with that definitely stage driven and individual driven and i think you already talked a little bit about the role of the mentor i don't know if there's anything that you would like to point out specifically about learning so i don't know exactly where i want to go with this question but i i feel like mentorship is usually seen as someone that simply is more um, experienced than you and can guide you so what i'm trying to say is that you learn something every day and you are constantly learning but sometimes you're not aware of that And what is the role of the mentor in making sure that you are aware of the steps you're taking and on track? Um, I think mentoring should definitely be part of your always learning toolbox. Um, and yes, actually, even the definition and the almost the stereotype of what a mentor is is changing and that's really good as well because it is traditionally maybe somebody older than you maybe someone more experienced than you um that is the um doing the mentoring and then it's become popular recently to have um reverse mentoring where a younger person mentors an older person i actually think the true synergy happens when it's two-way mentoring um And this is where this comes from my belief around always learning that you learn from all sorts of people of every discipline, of every background. It's recognizing how and what you can learn from them and being intentional and being open to that. And you may have different types of mentors or different types of people you learn from and ways you learn from them. But it's about being intentional for them. So maybe somebody that you know that you work with or maybe somebody that you see every day um, is super productive. So maybe the way they mentor you is almost by observation. You see the tools they use or you ask them what they use and they're super productive and you'd like to be as productive as they are or learn some of their productive habits. Maybe somebody else is always able to reflect and is a really good active listener and is able to take feedback really, really well. And maybe it's about talking to them about how do you take that on board or how do you give that feedback in a way that people don't become defensive, don't feel like it's an attack on who they are. How do you do that in a way that's intentional, caring and safe for everybody involved? So there's all sorts of different people, even down to somebody that makes an awesome meal for you once a month and what you learn from them is how to cook really great meals on a budget really quickly those type of things there's always a learning opportunity with almost everybody that you meet even if it's a learning opportunity of something you don't want to do in the future it's still a learning opportunity and I think that's where mentoring is almost everywhere but then the deep mentoring happens when you make a conscious decision and almost have a contract between two people of what that mentoring is going to look like how it's going to be how often it's going to be um and how that's going to work for both of you and also like we did actually Sarah have points of reflection and review so you can say how is this going is it working for both of us do we need to do more of this do we need to do less of this 
right down to the practicalities of how often do you do it, but also to the content and the impact of the mentorship. Yeah. Um, you mentioned two things that are, um, I'm, I'm very glad you did. Um, the, the fact that the mentor doesn't have to be someone that's older than you uh, or more experienced. Um, I really like that. I can share that this weekend I went tree planting um, and one of my buddies was a eight-year-old kid and I did learn a lot from him. Yeah. Uh, just because I was taking care of him accidentally that happened and even um, just by trying to help him and teach him something I learned something myself and so I like that um, that 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 aspect that you mentioned um, and I love what you said about everyone being everyone's mentor in a way yeah uh, and that you, if you pay attention you can learn with everyone around you We have talked about mentorship from our perspectives and we both are self-employed. Have you seen in your uh, clients, because I know you work with uh, big uh, corporations, how do you see mentorship happening in those more traditional uh, work settings? Uh, is it something that exists? It does. Sometimes it can be very forced and structured which has its pros and cons. It means, and that can be done in the form of um, buddy systems when people start a new job, they're paired up with somebody that already works there. Or when somebody is on a career trajectory and has a career path in front of them, they're mentored by somebody that's doing the job they would do next and those kind of things. That has positive and negatives. It gives you a clear structure to learning about your next move, the workplace that you're working with and how to operate, all of those kind of things. At the same time, it maybe perpetuates doing everything the same way as has always been done before. And that's what I've seen mentoring in corporate workplaces going wrong because it's still done in quite a traditional format. You're mentored by somebody that's doing a job that's paid more than you, that has more responsibility than you. Um, and potentially they're older than you. I don't see many situations where it's not like that. I've seen reverse mentoring programs, but I actually think that, and even in a, uh, a company that I worked with for a long time did reverse mentoring programs. I can think that I think that can be quite patronizing when it's not done in the right way. So the idea of reverse mentoring programs is that a young tech savvy employee, normally in a junior position, mentors somebody in a very senior position, potentially C-suite. Normally the CEO even agrees to do this to, to kind of launch the reverse mentoring program. And the young person is supposed to share how to use technology more productively and seamlessly. How I see that kind of mentoring relationship working really well is actually reframing who a mentor is and it to be two-way mentoring because Quite often, whilst a young person might be seen as being tech savvy and easily adapts to using new products and service, services, it doesn't mean that they're productive, they're effective, or they're operating and communicating effectively with other people using those tools. Whereas in somebody who may have been in the world of work for 20 or 30 years, has some learnt through time skills that they can share and adapt to use, on to use with technology. So then it becomes a two-way knowledge and skill swap. How do we use this technology productively and effectively in this environment? Let's figure it out together. Then it becomes really effective. And it becomes effective when you see 
different generations and also different layers of a hierarchical organization doing that in an equal format, sharing together, then it works. So I say when I've seen two-way mentoring operating effectively, which I haven't seen very often, it's normally considered reverse mentoring. That's really good. Having the space to ask somebody, say in a more traditional mentoring format, mentoring, as I mentioned at the beginning, being mentored by somebody doing a job you hope to do in the future, has its benefits because you get to talk to somebody outside your business as usual role about what you're doing and they can share the benefit of their experience. That is good. And it's space that's allowed within your working day to do that. The drawbacks are that potentially you, the individual being mentored, learns to do something that has always been done in the past when the future of work is changing rapidly and potentially the better way of mentoring would be to really think about the roles within the business both the role of the mentor and the mentee and look at the future of work and go how do we work together to work more effectively in an environment where we have more technology than we've ever had before and parts of our roles are no longer required to be done by us so how do we augment with the technology around us what is our role to become next that type of thing and really future gazing together as a workforce so yeah there's pros and cons official time and space to do mentoring but you can end up stuck in kind of the dark ages of the way you do it i think it goes back to what you mentioned in the in the beginning about risk um being willing to do that to first just say to the world and specifically to your organization i don't know how to do this let's figure it out together that's that's a bit big risk in organizations so again it's i think it's a matter of of mindset again um, how do we work together instead mm. of compete, competing with each other um which i think it's the, the still the the current mindset um i'm i hope that that changes and evolves um and you you've shared a few Uh, evolutions in the right direction in my opinion towards a more um, human-centered learning practice and maybe this is another practice that can adjust and, and uh, be more mm. uh, relevant to the future yes i hope so what advice would you give to someone that is considering finding a mentor or potentially already knows or they would like to to be their mentor but doesn't know how to start how How do you do that? I would say don't be afraid of being turned down because I've been turned down when I've asked people to mentor me, um, which at first <laughs> was a bit of a knockback and I thought I was never going to ask somebody again. I've been turned down a couple of times now. Um, and actually just go ahead. First of all, maybe don't even mention, mention the fact that you would like to, like to be mentored by them. Essentially, maybe invite invite the person you're interested in being your mentor out for a cup of coffee and start in the informal mentoring process, get to know them a bit more, understand how they, how, how, how busy they are maybe outside of work or outside of the frames that you know them to ascertain whether they've got the time to mentor or if they have the time to mentor, how often they've got to mentor and maybe just build the relationship a bit, a bit like that. Go for a couple of coffees with them or have a couple of calls with them And then um, ask them directly, will you be my mentor? Most people will be incredibly flattered. And if the people know you well enough, if they feel they can't mentor you because they don't have the time or they feel they don't have the right expertise, they will feel confident enough to say no. 
what I should have done when I was turned down by the two mentors that turned me down is say, thank you. Thank you for being honest with me. Ask them why they didn't want to mentor me and then ask them if they could recommend somebody or a type of person they think that would be good for me and why. I didn't do that. I should have done that to try and get that sense of why they said no and what they thought I needed to be mentored because that would give me a little bit more feedback as well. Great. So again, not being afraid of the risk of being turned down. Yeah, not being afraid of ask. Just ask. <laughs> Wonderful. So the last question, it's the big one. <laughs> and this is the question I am asking to all of the guests because I'm still figuring out my own definition of learning. And so my question to you now is, what is learning? Yes, that's such a difficult question. I think the concept of learning um, and studying is really changing. So we're transitioning from an era where you go through school, you study subjects, you go to college, you study a few less subjects, you go to university, you study one, maybe two subjects. You may carry on studying after that to a PhD, whatever it might be, but you narrow down what you learn to one or two subjects and you become an expert. And the expert is endorsed by being given a, by giving a certificate and attending a ceremony. And then you're kind of patted on the head and told, yes, you're an expert in the subject now. If you are really motivated and driven, you do continue to do CPD or research in your field because you're interested in the subject. But it's in your field and it's in your subject. We're now moving to the era of the polymath. Well, polymaths have always existed. A polymath is a person of wide knowledge and learning. So essentially, in the old, in old ways of talking about a polymath might be some of these I don't know, you may, you may or may not have come across this term. I'm a, I'm a jack of all trades. I'm a master of none. And that's quite derogative. Um, it's saying that it's it, and where I've had this problem. I think all learning experience designers, by the way, are a form of polymaths because we get to, in our career, design learning opportunities or design solutions for all sorts of people, all sorts of industries in all sorts of places, maybe public sector, private sector, third sector, all sorts of things. And that means we get to meet a lot of experts, we get to meet a lot of different people, and we get to learn about a lot of subjects. So we become almost, a, we become a polymath by trade. Um, I've also deliberately uh, bunny hopped across my careers to learn new things that I knew would be really useful to the thing I love, which is designing learning. So I've gone and learned how to do digital marketing. I've learned how to do product design. I've learned design thinking. I've learned all sorts of different things. And I'm able to do jobs in those and have done jobs in those in the past. The consequence of that is it's really hard for me to describe what I do simply to people, because I don't just do learning experience design, I do all sorts of other things. And people find that really challenging. And I've even been accused of not deciding what I want to do and having like a, like a flip flop career path. I said, No, actually, this is really exciting. I've done I've met hundreds of people and all sorts, thousands of people in all sorts of different fields. I've got a really huge network. I'm never bored. And I'll always be able to find something else to do in the future because of everything I've done so far. 
that's not how we're set up. And I think that's what learning is about. It's about recognizing every day is a learning opportunity. And the more we learn, the more exciting life becomes. Because when we can apply different things, different solutions, a bit like Elon Musk and how he goes from industry to industry and brings brings processes from one industry to another industry and things like that to make awesome innovations. We can do that in life. We can solve, rather than siloing up parts of our lives, we can solve all sorts of challenges and problems innovatively and in new ways and ways that suit us by bringing in what we've learned elsewhere if we keep learning. So what we've learned from our hobbies, what we've learned from becoming a parent or what we've learned from a relationship or what we've learned from the books we read or we've learned from jobs that we've done. I really think about sideways moves in jobs as and careers and industries as as important as any kind of traditional promotion, if not more so important, because we're going to become pretty bored if we just learn one thing and try and stick to that one thing for our entirety of our working life, because we're going to be working a hell of a lot longer than we imagined, and we're going to be living a hell of a lot longer than say the world is set up for so it's going to become pretty boring if we decide to stop learning when we leave school or leave university so I think that's what it's about it's about reframing what learning means it's not something that you have to do you go to school it's formal education it's compulsory education it's something you do to live a more exciting life I love that let's end there thank you Erica thank you it's been a pleasure What a way to end an episode. Now I feel even more inspired to continue this journey. If you want to get in touch with Erica, you can find her on LinkedIn. I would also love to hear from you. And you can do that by going to anchor.fm slash learning day and leave a voice message or reach out through the Instagram link you'll find on that page. If this episode was useful to you, consider subscribing to Learning Day on your podcast app and like as a little extra, share it with a friend. I don't know where this is going to take us, but I know we're going to learn something along the way. Thank you for listening. See you next time.